Our reading this afternoon is taken from um, Two Chronicles, and it's chapter 36, beginning at verse 5. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 11 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, attacked him and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also took to Babylon articles from the temple of the Lord and put them in his temple there. The other events of Jehoiakim's reign, the detestable things he did, and all that was found against him, are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. And Jehoiakim, his son, succeeded him as king. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for three months and ten days. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. In the spring, King Nebuchadnezzar sent for him and brought him to Babylon, together with articles of value from the temple of the Lord, and he made Jehoiakim's uncle, Zedekiah, king over Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 11 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God, and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke the word of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him take an oath in God's name. He became stiff-necked and hardened in his heart, and would not turn to the Lord, the God of Israel, Furthermore, all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful, following all the detestable practices of the nations and defiling the temple of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or aged. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burnt all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword And they became servants to him and his sons, until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of its desolation it rested, until the seventy years were completed in fulfilment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. 
This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're starting this series of sermons on Daniel, uh, one of the great characters of the Old Testament, and let's pray as we come to God's word. We thank you, Father, for uh, the fact that even these very ancient stories, steeped as they are in the culture of their age, have many lessons for us today. Daniel was a hero of faith, living in an alien society and holding his head high for you. Help us to learn from him, that we might bring glory to your name. Amen. So we're going to look at the familiar stories, of course, as we go through the series, the, uh, the lion's den and the writing on the wall and the fiery furnace. And we will look, when we get to Advent, uh, at the extraordinary vision, uh, or visions, really, of the end times uh, that uh, Daniel has. There are many things that we can learn from Daniel, Uh, But I suppose the principal lesson that we can learn is how we can survive as Christians in a hostile culture. Not, of course, that St. Peter's here is a hostile culture, but it did seem sort of like sort of exile time in a way uh, for us to be looking at Daniel. You know what I mean. But we have much much to learn from him. Perhaps as society moves away from Christian values and Christian teaching, Maybe we become more of a marginalized minority as Christians. How are we to live for Christ in such a situation? This evening, I just want to fill in the background to the story of Daniel, which the end of Two Chronicles helps us with. I think it was Laurel and Hardy who used to say, a fine mess you've got us into. And there is no doubt that the Jewish people had got themselves into a fine mess And it led to the national disaster of the exile to Babylon, the end of the Davidic Empire, the beginning of the Jewish diaspora, uh, with all the implications that that has had for the history of the world for the last 2,500 years. It's a very significant moment in world history, not just in the history of Israel, but in world history. So how did they get into this mess? What happened? I'm sorry, I suppose, well, I'm not really sorry, but I mean, I I realize that some people find a history lesson a little bit dull. Uh, I won't go into it in great detail. I happen to love history, so you'll have to put up with it for a bit. It's not as long as the exile anyway, so so bear with me. But it is, I think, very helpful to to understand where Daniel is coming from and why he lived and spoke as he did in Babylon, if we do get the background clear in our minds. So... On the screen, uh, John is going to put up a chronology. It's a little bit small, but I hope you can see it. Don't worry too much if you can't see it. It's also on the white sheet if you've got it there. It's just the, the, some of the key dates at the, of the times. I'll come, to the, I'll come to the start of the chronology in a moment. But things began to go wrong in Israel uh, when Solomon died and the kingdom, Solomon, who, of course, was the heir to David, when he died and the kingdom was divided between Israel and Judah. Solomon's successor was Rehoboam, but Jeroboam, who had been exiled to Egypt by Solomon, rebelled against him and led 
Israel, the northern half of the country, in rebellion against the house of David. And so as a result of the division of the kingdom, there was civil war and chaos for many, many years. In due course, Israel was conquered by Assyria, and there were periods of peace and even periods of relative prosperity under various kings, but the divisions between the two halves of the nation were very deep indeed. Alliances were made with pagan neighbors, and the uniqueness of the religious life of Israel and Judah was constantly undermined. The religious life, of course, of the country was what distinguished them from all the nations round about them. And in particular, they had this relationship with a personal God whose presence was uh, emphasized by the existence of the temple. But during these uh, years, the temple became neglected and all sorts of compromises were made with pagan religions uh, in, their ne- in the neighboring countries, often referred to shrines being set up in high places, hill, hill country and so on. Worship of idols away from the temple, the place where God was deemed to be present amongst his people. Let me just give you one example of the kind of thing that, was, that happened. I'm going to just read from uh, chapter 24, just a few verses from uh, chapter 24, verses 17 to 20. After the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and paid homage to the king, and he listened to them. They abandoned the temple of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and worshipped Asherah poles and idols. Because of their guilt, God's anger came upon Judah and Jerusalem. Although the Lord sent prophets to the people to bring them back to him, and though they testified against them, they would not listen. Then the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, son of Jehoiada the priest. He stood before the people and said, This is what God says. Why do you disobey the Lord's command? You will not prosper. Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. Very serious situation for God's people. Some kings, like uh, Jotham and Hezekiah, attempted a kind of half-hearted, in a half-hearted sort of way to put things right, but the general trend was downwards through many, many years, until Josiah became king, which is really where our story begins. And Josiah was a remarkable man. He was only eight when he became a king, and he reigned for 31 years. And he restored the temple, which had been falling into disrepair, and most significantly of all, he reintroduced the celebration of the Passover, that distinguishing festival that, re- that recognized and celebrated God's rescue of his people from Egypt. Which, and that had been neglected since David's time. It was restored. There was a real chance that things might improve. But Josiah made a fatal mistake at the end of his reign. He took on, in battle, the Egyptians when the clear instruction from all those around him and from God was not to do so. In the late 17th century, the kingdom of Judah was already a client state of the Assyrian Empire. It was previously been an Assyrian province. The rise of Babylon overcame Assyria. And Egypt, fearing the sudden rise of this neo-Babylonian empire, seized control of the Syrian territory right up to the Euphrates River in Syria. 
but Babylon counterattacked. And in that process, Josiah, the king of Judah, was killed in a battle with the Egyptians, at a famous battle, the Battle of Megiddo, in 609 BC. And Josiah's death, he was only 39, was a disaster for Judah. Josiah was really their last hope, and he had gone. And you can tell from um, Andrea's reading that the kings that came after Josiah, one after the other, are reported as of doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Josiah did good in the sight of the Lord, but in taking on the Egyptians, he lost his life and therefore had gone. In 605 BC, the Egyptians were defeated by the Babylonians at the Battle of Carchemish, another very famous historical battle, and Babylon's dominance began. Jehoiakim, who was king of Judah, began paying tribute to Nebuchadnezzar, a name that we will come up against again and again in the story of Daniel. And some of the young nobility, as early as 605 BC, were taken into captivity, and almost certainly as early as that, in 605 BC, Daniel with his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were taken off to Babylon, 605 BC. In the following years, the court of Israel was divided into two parties, one in support of Egypt and one in support of Babylon. And after Nebuchadnezzar was defeated in battle in 601 BC by Egypt, Judah revolted against Babylon, culminating in a three-month siege of Jerusalem, which began in late 598 BC. Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, died during the siege, and he was succeeded by his son, Jehoiakim, who's also called Jeconiah, he had these two names, at the age of 18. And in five, on March the 16th, 597 BC, the city fell after this terrible siege and the terrible suffering of the people inside Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar pillaged Jerusalem and its temple, as we read in 2 Chronicles, and took Jeconiah, his court, and other prominent citizens, including the prophet Ezekiel, much of whose prophecy was from, of course, from Babylon. He took them all back to Babylon. Jehoiakim's uncle, Zedekiah, was appointed king in Jerusalem, in his place, a client king of uh, Babylon, and, uh, but, it, but in the exiles in Babylon considered Jeconiah to be their true king. So you had two terrible divisions amongst the people. Despite the remonstrations of Jeremiah and others of who were the pro-Babylonian party, you remember Jeremiah prayed for the peace of Babylon and sought all the time for peace, Zedekiah revolted against Babylon and entered into an alliance with Egypt. So you've got Zedekiah, the client king in Jerusalem, now allying with Egypt, asking for trouble from Nebuchadnezzar, who, of course, returned, defeated the Egyptians, again besieged Jerusalem, resulting this time in the city's more or less total destruction and the deportation of huge numbers of citizens in 587 BC. The city wall was destroyed, most of the temple was destroyed, together with the houses of the most important uh, citizens. Zedekiah was blinded and taken to Babylon with many others. And Judah now became a Babylonian province, not a kingdom, not a client kingdom, but a, Bab- a, a Babylonian province with a governor, initially a chap called Gedaliah. That, so that was the end of the kingdom of Judah. In fact, archaeologists now reckon that probably only about 25 to 30% of the people were actually taken from 
the country and taken to Babylon. That's still a huge number of people. Imagine that happening if we were conquered now and 25, 30% of us uh, were taken away somewhere else. It would be a huge, huge impact. But in fact, a lot of people did stay, mostly in agricultural, rural communities, uh, which is why uh, we read in the, in the reading about the land enjoying a kind of Sabbath of time because there was still agriculture going on. But essentially, the, the nation was destroyed as a political entity. It had gone. And the chronology there on the screen will help you to uh, fit all that into place. And, um, and you can see that it is for, for uh, many, many years, some, uh, what is it, 70 years, uh, 70 years later, that uh, uh, eventually God raises up Cyrus and the return to Jerusalem begins and we begin to read about people like Zerubbabel and eventually Nehemiah and so on. So apart from the historical interest, and you you may or may not find those uh, events interesting, I don't know, the fact is that it allows us to understand why Daniel and his friends were in Babylon. They were there because of the terrible failure of Israel and Judah to keep the religious practices of their, uh, of, of, given to them over generations to keep them going. They disobeyed the Lord and paid a terrible price. What can we learn? I suggest three lessons, just three lessons quickly. First of all, we learn something about the seriousness of structural sin. We learn something about the seriousness of structural sin. God's purpose throughout the biblical revelation is to have his people living in his place under his rule. That's what salvation history is all about. God's people in God's place under God's rule. And of course we know now that this rule was always going to be a spiritual reality rather than a political one. That of course was not the case then. Over the centuries God revealed his character and his plan of salvation through his people in political situations, in the political history of the Jews. And their repeated failure to live by his laws and to practice the religion of Yahweh, their structural sin, brought warnings of judgment again and again from the prophets, but by and large they were ignored by the people. And so disaster came upon the country. In fact, time and time again, God relented from judgment in order to give them another chance. But again and again and again, they were led astray. God's people, in fact, in the wrong place, under pagan rule. That's how the story ends. And this teaches us the seriousness of sin, which is, of course, the uh, tendency that we all have, that all fallen humankind has. We have a tendency to thwart the purposes of God. There is within us a rebellious streak. I remember going through a phase in my life as a student when I used to walk down the street and I had an almost uncontrollable urge to break shop windows. I don't have that at all now, but I remember, as a, I remember you'll be relieved to know, but uh, I remember thinking that's a really strange thing to want to do. But there is within us this tendency to want to thwart what is good. You will all have been aware of it, I'm sure, at various times in your life. God is full of compassion and patience, but he is also just. Thus, in the, in the early part of their history, the captivity in Egypt is seen 
by the writers of the Pentateuch as just punishment for the failures of Israel and particularly of Jacob's son. Jacob, of course, who was, who, who, who was named uh, Israel. Uh, his sons failed and they were punished. Joseph appears as a rescuing figure. And the Exodus is God's miraculous and loving rescue from Egypt. The reign of David looks like God's people in God's place under God's rule. It was the high point, in a way, of Israel's history. But again, as we've seen recently in our series on David, the wheels came off as both David and his successors fall into sin. The exile is the new captivity, and the return under Zerubbabel and later under Nehemiah is seen as a new exodus, a new hope by the people. But it is into that situation that the story of Daniel and his prophecies in the last half of the book particularly speak. You see, when Jesus speaks of himself as the Son of Man, he recognizes that the only, the only, only the spiritual re- restoration of a non-political kingdom will eventually fulfill God's great purpose. And in seeing this, in the last half of the book, Daniel is a man really well ahead of his time. He somehow sees, like a futurologist might now try to tell us what's going to happen in 50 years' time, he begins to see that God's kingdom is to be inaugurated by a divine figure who will inaugurate a spiritual kingdom, the Son of Man. The great mistake that is made in many churches today, and perhaps by many of us who are Christians, is that sin is not taken seriously enough. That is not to say that we need to feel guilty all the time, because of God's grace we are forgiven sinners. But rebellion against God is a very serious issue, and this story reminds us that God's judgment is on structural sin in society. Any nation that turns its back on God, as Israel and Judah did, and I suppose, as many think that we are in risk of doing today, are are risking God's judgment upon us. Perhaps his compassion and and patience will restrain his judgment, as it did for many, many years in Judah and Israel, but perhaps not. We must take sin seriously, structural sin seriously, and as Christians, we must seek to be influencing our society to do things which are right. The second thing that we learn is something about the sovereignty of God. The sufferings of the ordinary people now broadcast all over our TV screens and, of course, on social media, which has transformed our perception of the sufferings of the world uh, amazingly. The sufferings of ordinary people around the world appall us. But, of course, nothing is new except our awareness of what is going on. Imagine the appalling suffering of the people of Jerusalem during the siege by Nebuchadnezzar. They were besieged for three months, and they had already been at war for years. Many of their people had already been taken into exile. Families had been divided. Different family units pulled apart. The agonies of the people then surely compare with the agonies of the people that we are seeing on our TV screens now in northern Iraq, Syria, and other parts of the world. Of course, then, like now, many people cried out, where is God? 
Where is God in this? What is God doing? Has God abandoned his people completely? Has God lost control of history, in fact? And, of course, there's a very delicate delicate balance between the omnipotence of God, his ability to control events, and our free will. Should God intervene at all times, thus reneging on his creation promise that mankind made in his image is to have dominion over all that he has made. The world was created with God in his image for man to rule justly. That is what God's people in God's place under his rule are to do. That is what we as Christians are to do. If he intervenes the whole time, does mankind cease to be in his image and become mere pawns, mere robots? As we shall sing in our final hymn at the end of this service, the truth is that God is working his purpose out as year proceeds to year. He agonizes with his people in their suffering, for he is himself a suffering God. Furthermore, out of every disaster, as we saw last week with the serving in mission doctors in West Africa, he brings stories of rescue and heroism, just as we shall see he did in Babylon through Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, and others. Heroes of redemption and rescue emerge amongst the ruins and the pain of human existence. And not for one moment do I suggest that it is easy for us to understand, but this story reminds us that God, God, unlike us, always has the big picture in mind. And the story reminds us that history will one day make sense even if in the immediate moment we can't make sense of it ourselves. It will make sense, for God is sovereign. Lastly, the third thing that we can learn very quickly is that there is always hope of salvation, the seriousness of sin, the sovereignty of God, and the hope of salvation. There is always hope. The story of the exile ends in a most unlikely way. God raises up a pagan king, Cyrus of Persia, just as it has been prophesied by Isaiah, for instance, to defeat Babylon and permit the return of the exiles and the eventual reconstruction, of course, of the city of Jerusalem or the largely largely reconstructed city of Jerusalem and, of course, the temple itself. As Daniel so powerfully sees in his visions at the end of his book, even this, though, does not result in God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. The old rebellions re-emerge, the old disobediences, and only when a new covenant is revealed, a covenant not of law, depending on what we do, but of grace, depending on having a pure heart and clean hands, as we learnt at the beginning of this service. Only then, only then, a kingdom inaugurated by the life, death, and resurrection of the heavenly figure that Daniel saw in his visions, the figure of the Son of Man coming on the clouds, only then can humankind live peacefully under God's rule in God's place. And that is where we are today. We are God's people in God's place under his rule. That is what Christians are today to live under the gentle rule of King Jesus, empowered by his spirit, belonging to his family, which is manifested in the local church, that, as Paul preached so powerfully a few weeks ago, that is 
That is literally the hope of the world, the only hope of the world. Let's pray. Probably like uh, Daniel as he was probably in chains on the back of a truck being pulled by oxen across the desert into exile, we feel utterly enfeebled and helpless before the tide of events around us in the world today. But the truth is, the truth is that every Christian, every Christian can make a huge difference, a huge difference. Father, we recognize before you our our terrible weakness and our insecurities, but we want to say to you that we believe that by your grace, you are creating a community around the world which is the hope of the world. It is the hope of the world. For we have King Jesus and we long for his rule to come. Rule in us, King Jesus, and rule in our nation, in our world, for your glory. Amen.